But we praise you that what Christ has done has freed us and delivered us from that domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your dear Son. We praise you for this life that we have in Jesus. We thank you that we can sing of it and sing of your mercy, of your grace, of your kindness to us in Christ. And Lord, today as you continue to wean us from ourselves and wean us from our self-confidence. I pray that we would be submissive to Your Word. We gather before a challenging text of Scripture and we need Your grace. We need You to aid us and help us to understand what You have revealed. To do so humbly but faithfully as we bend to what You have said. And we thank You that what rises from this text is Your mercy that is stronger than our darkness. Your mercy that is greater than our sin the saving mercies of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. We gather in this hope and we pray in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior that you would bring them even through this message to salvation in Christ. And for we who do, we praise you for the witness of the Spirit that we have become the children of God and we will, perhaps for all eternity, come to understand better and better what that means. May we test plumb depths of your mercy here together today in a sanctifying way that honors your name among us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. God has a habit of troubling our expectations of him. He often works in ways that we really don't think are best. God says things that confuse us, maybe even upset us at times. Now there are churches who never seem troubled by the Bible, we'll admit, because they simply ignore or explain away those passages that do not fit their expectations. Whatever their predetermined beliefs are, if the Bible doesn't fit that, they just ignore it. Maybe closer to home are Christians who only read Scripture, what they would say is devotionally. They squeeze the Bible for direct personal application. And that's not a bad thing in itself. But they discard any passage that seems not to relate directly to their daily lives or prop up their sagging spirits. This material of Scripture is just not important to me. And the danger is that we can disregard much of what God says about Himself with such approaches. And that really develops us into a shallow, incomplete knowledge of who God truly is. It's my prayer that we would never be such a church. I pray that we will learn to read the Bible from cover to cover with a zeal to understand its original meaning that we might know who God truly is. May that be our quest together as His people. But when you do that... When you read the Bible from cover to cover, when you read all of it, when you seek to know God for what is revealed there, this book will rattle you. It will prove upsetting at times. God doesn't always color in the lines that we've created for Him. He says things 
He does things that don't meet our approval and trouble our spirits. And when the God of Scripture says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than yours, well, He means it. He means it. The wonder of it all is that such texts often put the glory of God on stunning display. Is it not often those places where your reason just says it can't be this way? Is that not where we so often come face to face with God in all of His splendor? Isn't it those places where He does color outside the lines, where He even troubles us, where we come closer to His glory and His excellencies. And that's certainly true with Romans chapter 9. I even anticipate there'll be a fair degree of disagreement among us, among individuals within our assembly over a challenging passage such as this. I think we generally track together on this, but recognize that there are different opinions and understandings of interpretation here. But this is certainly one of those texts where you just say, God's ways are not our ways. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul's telling us. Our task is to take it all, to look it in the face and say, what does this mean? What is God saying about Himself here in Romans chapter 9? He begins the book in chapter 1 announcing His thesis, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. First to the Jews, God's chosen nation through whom Messiah was born, then to individual believers in the Gentile world having disclosed God's wrath against all sinners, which includes all of us, Paul argues that our justification comes not by works, but by faith in Christ's work. Not by trust in my work, but by trust in His. Troubling to religious people everywhere. Paul then reveals that God justifies the ungodly. That he declares righteous those who are sinners through their faith in Christ crucified and risen. Chapter 3, 21, 26. Chapter 5, 6 to 11. This faith unites us spiritually with Christ. It liberates us from sin's dominion in our lives. In Christ there is for believers then, chapter 8, no condemnation. What is more, nothing can separate us from the love of God who foreknows His people, predestines us, calls us to life, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies us. Chapter 8, verses 29 to 39. Paul ends chapter 8 on this ringing note of triumphant joy. But he has some major work to do with his readers. And the Spirit of God has some major work to do with us as we come to full understanding of the book of Romans. And so Paul puts on hold here for a time the practical application that will begin in chapter 12 
And we come to these massive, soaring mountain peaks of Romans chapters 9 through 11. I do not believe they are parenthetical. I don't believe that they are simply illustrative. I think that these chapters are vital and integral to all that Paul is saying in this book. But before we enter into chapters 9 through 11, I think it would be helpful for us to get an overview, just briefly touch an overview of redemption history, that we might get a running head start as we come into these chapters over the next few weeks by God's grace. We think first of all, and must consider, Abraham's election by God. Genesis chapter 12 reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose Abraham as the patriarch of the family line through which Messiah would be born to bless the world. And I ask the question, what did Abram do to gain this favor from God? He did absolutely nothing. Abram simply responded in faith to God's initiative. God's promise to Abraham becomes one of a series of lenses then through which salvation history must be understood. We find this consistently as the text of Genesis develops. Chapter 18, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? Why? Because God said so, His promise. Why in Abraham's part? Because God chose him. Not because of what he had done, but he will become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. Here's the issue. I have chosen him, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God sovereignly determines to bless the nations of the world through this man, Abraham. That is God's initiative, God's idea, God's purpose, and for this purpose, He chooses Abraham. As redemption history develops, God chooses the nation that comes from the offspring of Abraham. Exodus 19, Moses goes up the mountain to God, up Mount Sinai, and the Lord calls him out of the mountain, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. They're freshly delivered from Egypt. God meeting the nation here says, Therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In relationship to God, a treasured possession. In relationship to the nations, a kingdom of priests. In relationship to her own identity, a holy nation, 
set apart for God to work out His salvation. Through this nation, God will bless the nations. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Let that settle in. God chose Israel to be a treasured possession out of all the other nations. Why? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Don't look to yourselves. I chose you. That's the issue. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Israel is chosen as God's unique possession on the basis of God's choice. His electing love, we might call it. God loves Israel for one reason, and that is this. He chose to love Israel. He does not guide the nation to look within and say, here's what God saw in you that was really special. I don't know how words can say it more succinctly and carefully than this. You weren't special. But I chose to love you. So that Isaiah can write, The prophet, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you. Now let's jump forward to Paul's day. Christ has been crucified, he has risen from the dead. And some time has passed. And what is very clear at this point is that the Jews have largely rejected Jesus the Messiah. When Jesus claimed to be the pre-existent Son of God, spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Daniel 7, 9 and following, the Jewish authorities, what did they do when they heard that from Jesus? They did not fall on their faces in worship as they should. They should have been so trembling they couldn't stand up anymore. When the Ancient of Days, seated on His throne, gives to the Son of Man the prerogatives of God forever, and Jesus says what Daniel prophesied, that's me, they should have fallen down in fear. What did they do? Charged Him with blasphemy, Matthew 26, and crucified Him. That's a big problem. That's a major problem in the storyline. This was God's nation. These were the people through whom Messiah would be born to bless the world, and they put Him on a cross. And we know, of course, all according to the plan of God, but it doesn't take away what they've done. And from there, things do not get any better. Jesus rises, ascends into heaven where He is seated today, and Paul comes to know Christ as Savior and carries on His mission. And it's not like Jews are standing in line to receive Jesus. While many Jewish people had trusted Jesus as Messiah, the nation, God's chosen people, had largely rejected Him. At the same time, Gentiles were embracing Jesus as Messiah, 
in amazing numbers. They were trusting the good news that Paul was preaching concerning Christ crucified and risen. What does this overwhelming Gentile response to the gospel mean for Israel? That was a very live question in Paul's day. Has the church replaced Israel as God's people? Is Israel's place in God's salvation plan over? Could it be that in a bitter irony, the gospel has slammed the door shut on God's elect nation? Critics of Paul were claiming that he was making this claim, that he had betrayed his people, teaching that God had cursed them forever and turned his back upon them. From the other direction, the Jews of Paul's day insisted that salvation was a Jewish birthright. That's part of his context as well. If you're a Jew, you're saved, the mainstream would have said. Others who had come to in some way respond to Jesus as Messiah insisted that every Gentile needed to become a Jew to be saved by Jesus. Lots of confusion and all kinds of people lambasting Paul, claiming that he believed his mission of hope to the Gentiles was a message of rejection to Israel and therefore that God could not keep a promise. He's under this severe attack as we come into Romans 9-11 through and he begins to address it. He argues that the gospel's success among the Gentiles, the company with us right here now, it does not mean that God has abandoned Israel. Gospel conquest among Gentiles is no sign of God's disinheritance of the nation. Rather, what it is saying, it attests that God has sovereignly worked in salvation. So the evidence is not a disinheritance of Israel, it attests to God's sovereignty in salvation. In fact, what is happening with the Gentiles, Paul argues, is consistent with how God has always worked in salvation. He might be confusing. His ways are higher than our ways. We didn't see this coming. All of this is consistent with who God is. We're going to learn something about who God is. I want to teach you, says Paul. As he digs down deep into the saving purposes of God, Paul's defense of the gospel reveals the troubling wonder of God's saving grace and its nature in this day. He begins with with the problem, the statement of the problem which we've already considered. But he begins with this problem that Israel has rejected her Messiah. Verse 1 of chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What does verse 1 reflect? What does it reflect? He evidences here the influence of his critics, doesn't he? He's just like tripping over himself to say, I really, really mean this. Against those who accuse him of betraying Israel, Paul says his soul is filled with anguish at the realization that Israel has rejected Messiah. He doesn't put it in that 
in those specific terms, but that's the point to the passage. That's the context. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I know that this is my heart cry. It's for Israel. So intense is Paul's horror that he would even be willing to bear God's wrath for Israel's salvation if that were possible. And the sting... The sting of Israel's rejection of her Messiah is made all the more acute in light of salvation history. Notice verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The adoption... God chose Israel as His own Son. And God uniquely blessed Israel with glorious presence. His presence with them, among them. His saving grace, His covenantal promises to people such as King David. The distinct worship of Israel. Messiah was indeed the offspring of the chosen line through whom God promised to produce a son who would crush Satan's head. Messiah, who is indeed God over all, I think is the right way to take it. Now, lots of controversy under the surface here, but let me just say, for those keeping record, taking notes on these kinds of things, I don't think that there's any possibility to take this passage directly without concluding that he's talking about literal Israel. I would make that point on these arguments. First of all, he speaks of my kinsmen according to the flesh. My ancestry according to the body. He's not talking here about a spiritual entity. He's talking about my ancestry. Secondly, Jesus is born of their race according to the flesh. That phrase, their race, The race of the Israelites, according to the flesh, is language that is most unfitting to speak of spiritual Israel, however constituted and understood. So he's talking here, I believe, about national Israel, about the Jewish nation. These first verses set us on that course And I think that everything that he says in chapters 9 through 11 is consistent with that interpretation. His kinsmen according to the flesh, the race according to the flesh through which Jesus was born connects to the promise to Abraham that through your offspring the world will be blessed. That's Jesus, that's the Jewish people. That's the problem. Paul now jumps into the explanation. God's promises, he will argue, have not failed. He has always sovereignly chosen individual sinners to salvation, as he is now choosing individual Gentiles for salvation. God has always worked this way. That's Paul's point. God has always worked this way. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
Here's the haunting possibility in there in verse 6a. The haunting possibility is that God's word has failed. He has failed his elect people. He has not kept his promise. What he said to them up front has fallen apart. That's a possibility. But the reality is God sovereignly elects individuals to salvation. Always has, always will. In a sense, that's what he'll argue now. So verse 6a, God's promises to Israel have not failed. The meaning and extent of these promises are one of the central features of this chapter. Paul says God has not disinherited Israel. Something much greater is going on as we look at the Gentile mission. If you concluded that Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah means that God's promises to Israel have failed, you're really misunderstanding salvation history. To say nothing of misunderstanding the character of God. So through verse 29, we'll look to verse 24, hopefully, here together, Paul will defend the thesis that the gospel's saving power in the lives of Gentiles does not evidence infidelity to Israel, but evidences his sovereignty and salvation. The conversion of Gentiles is simply showing that God can save whomever he wants to save, and he always has. The support for this will come from the Old Testament text. We'll go through them fairly quickly and in, uh, hopefully drawing upon a knowledge that you have of these narratives. But note, where is he going first? Verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Did God save? Did he... and Old covenant, new covenant, some differences there when we use the word salvation. But in the same stream, did God save every descendant of Abraham? What do we know of the Old Testament? Did he save every descendant of Abraham? Paul says, of course not. Physical descent from Abraham never made anyone a part of God's true spiritual people. Believe me, that was an offensive statement. But as he defends his position, defends himself, he's saying being born into the Jewish nation does not save anyone. Not all who descend from physical Israel belong to spiritual Israel. I think that's the idea there in verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6, at the end of verse 6. Not all who've descended from Israel physically belong to Israel spiritually. God's elected, God elects some of Abraham's children to be part of spiritual Israel, but not all. Salvation is not linked actually to ancestry. It is linked more primarily to promise. It's God's promise that is the issue. So there are people, to be honest and fair here, who will read all of Romans 9 through 11 this way. They will see a distinction, as everyone does, between Jews and Gentiles. But they will see then this idea of a true Israel that includes some people in Israel and includes many more Gentiles. But this true Israel is the people that are being discussed in this passage. Because of these references to the flesh, Jesus being born from that race, even the word is used. Because of that, 
I see, and I think it's more consistent with the text to see it this way. When he talks about true Israel, he's talking about a group that is entirely within Israel. Or, if I could put a face on it, Israel in this graphic is Ishmael. In some sense, in the sense that he's been born, that he's a child of Abraham. True Israel is whom? Isaac. Or, to use a different story, Israel the child of Jacob, is Esau. But it's Jacob, the child of promise, who is the true Israel. I said Jacob, I meant Isaac. You know what I'm saying, right? Does that make sense? So there are people born of the promised one, the promised line, who are not spiritually of the true Israel. This is how I will read the rest of Romans 9 through 11, I think that it's most consistent with the text. And of course, others would think it's not. But these are things we have to work through. And we, can't, we don't really have a choice. That's one of the things of preaching through books of the Bible. You can't avoid anything. You've got to hit it all. And I think this is a way, and I'll try to describe that as I have here. My kinsmen according to the flesh, Jesus born from their race according to the flesh. He's talking about Israel and a true Israel within Israel. Notice verse 7 as he goes now to the Isaac narrative. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In that process of getting to Messiah... Who is it that's counted? Not any child of Abraham, but the promised son, Isaac. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. She doesn't need a son. Abraham already has a son, Ishmael, and God's promise could flow through Ishmael, but God says, no, it's going to flow through Isaac. And before Isaac is born, God makes this declaration. I have chosen Isaac. After Ishmael's born, God promises barren Sarah that she will give birth to this Isaac through whom the promised Messiah will come. What's the point? God's corporate election of Israel does not translate to individual election of all of Abraham's offspring. He goes then secondly, and again that point was very offensive to mainstream Jews of that day. But he goes now to a second illustration in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Let's think again in verse 10. We know the story. We consider the next generation, the offspring of the son of promise, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. One might argue that Ishmael was not chosen as the son of promise because it was through an improper relationship between Abraham and Hagar. But here we have not only the same mother and father, we have twins. 
And let me tell you, the Greek text is even more explicit than the English text. These two guys came from one seminal emission. They're that close. God chose Jacob, and God did not choose Esau. Why? That God's purpose in election might be displayed. That is key. That is a key thought here in verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, he chooses Jacob, not Esau, before either one ever did anything. In fact, before either one was conceived. Now, quick note, God did not hate Esau emotionally. It's not how we should read the word hate here. We don't really have a category for non-emotional hatred in our setting. But in light of God's elective love for Jacob, God's relationship to Esau could be classified as elective hatred or rejection. And maybe that's an easier word for us. God rejected Esau. He didn't choose him. And the key again is that God's purpose in election might continue. God executes his purpose by means of election, not on the means of works, but because of him who calls to life. So in the larger point here is that God has the sovereign right to choose whomever he wants to choose among the Jews or the Gentiles. Paul is looking at the world in which he lives. He goes to the Old Testament Scriptures and he says, here is God revealing Himself as sovereign to make whatever choice He wants. He'll never do so in an ungodly way, in an unjust way, in, an un, in, in a way that, that detracts from His purity and His goodness. But God has every right to make any choice that God wants to make. And He did that with Jacob and Esau. We can't figure it out. We can't put God in the dock. It's not our place to prosecute him and ask why this was the case, nor does the Bible ever give us the explanation of here's why he chose Jacob. Isn't Paul laboring here to say there was no reason in Jacob? Right? He wasn't even conceived yet. The two were conceived of the same mother and father, growing, nurturing in the same womb. Esau born before Jacob. God just chose Jacob. He knew why. He knew what was in it, but nowhere is there any explanation given to us. The closer at hand, the way Paul has interpreted Genesis is sure to raise objections, isn't it? Does God elect individuals to salvation apart from human merit? How would you answer that question on the basis of what we've read? Does He elect individuals to salvation apart from human merit? You have to say yes. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. That's what the text says. If so, is God just in doing this? Is God right? If you ask that question, I really don't see that this is just and right. You're on the right track. Because as we come, point three here, to the basis of this explanation, it is that Jews and Gentiles are chosen to salvation on the basis of God's purpose alone. And he makes this very clear in verse 14. Objection number 1, 14. Objection number 2, 19. We'll consider them in turn. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If you follow what I'm saying, Paul says, you will have this natural objection. 
Isn't God unjust to choose some people for salvation and not to choose others? Shouldn't that be left to them to decide? If we interpret this passage to strip away all troubling implications, we are not tracking with what God reveals here about Himself. This is one of those places where His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we're not going to help God out by reasoning away the difficulty. Let us take comfort in this. Can we? Paul's strong assertion, by no means. There's no injustice with God. He insists that God chooses individuals unto salvation and is wholly just in doing so. Paul answers this first question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part with this answer? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Pretty strong language. If you're getting it and you're tracking with what Paul's saying, you're going to say that's pretty strong language. Is he unjust? No, he has every right to have compassion on whom he chooses. That is the answer. So it doesn't depend, verse 16, on human will or exertion. That is so crucial here. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Salvation is never fundamentally based on what we choose or what we do. We do choosing and we do action. But salvation is not based fundamentally there. How else would you read verse 16? It depends not on human will or exertion on what we want or what we do. God did not choose Jacob because he could foresee Jacob would put his faith in God and Esau would not. That is not what the text says. That would base salvation on human will and exertion. Jacob is going to choose me, Esau will not, therefore I will choose Jacob. That is is adding to this text, it's trying to help God out on our terms as if he needs us. Paul very carefully says it's not connected to that. God just chose Jacob. We have to leave that with him as to why he did that in his mercy. And what do you see in the history of Jacob? Quick sideline. What do you see in the history of Jacob that makes you like him? Not much. Right? The guy isn't a very nice guy. He doesn't trust God. He's a bit of a mess, in fact. That's much the point. It's the transforming grace of God that's the issue always. Not how good a guy Jacob would turn out to be and God foresaw and so chosen. No. It's not connected to anything that these guys did. Rather, God chose Jacob because he chose Jacob, assuring that Jacob would eventually place his trust in God and would, through the transformative power of God, Live to be a man of faith in the end. Now, quick sideline again. People get really nervous here and say, if we take this line of thought, it will kill evangelism. But those who insist that this way of thinking hinders evangelism, I think just look on the wrong side of the equation. First of all, they forget who's writing this and how he lived his life. 
that's answer enough. But I think secondly, what is more evangelistically motivating to you? The idea that you are capable of convincing a person who is capable of trusting Christ, A, or B, the idea that God has sovereignly chosen people to salvation and invites you to take the water of life to them? Which one's more motivating? Why are we more motivated by human freedom under our evangelistic influence than by human freedom under the sovereign purposes of a, of a God of all power? It doesn't kill evangelism at all. It just changes the whole orientation. If you, if the, if you walked up to a line of 100 slaves... All of them were chained to a pole at the wrist. And you were told that 10 of those 100, the chain has been unlocked. They're actually free. They can be liberated. They just don't know it. And the enemy is coming down on you. And you've got a few minutes to open those, find those 10. What do you do? Well, they're free. I don't need to do anything. They've already been unlocked. They, 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 they can pull on it. They'll figure it out. Somebody else will figure it out. I'm getting out of here. Why would you do that? Would you not say, I know there's ten of them that have been opened. I've been told this. And I go and I test each one. I can't do everything. I can't free all of them. But I can free the ones who don't know they've been freed. It's highly motivating to know there's people out there, the chains have been unlocked. They don't know it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is like you yanking down on that thing and going, ah, here's one. This one's free. And they come to trust the gospel. It doesn't kill evangelism. It just changes its whole orientation. And the negative is equally true then of God. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. As God sovereignly extends mercy to His chosen people, to Jacob, for instance, in like manner He sovereignly withholds mercy from others, permitting their hard heart to remain unaffected by the offer of salvation. Let's think about this rightly. God isn't a bully here. But if a person is insensitive to spiritual truth and rejects Christ, this is never God's fault. We're all born in that condition. All God must do to harden a heart is to not engage it. He hardens hearts, not by bullying people, but by simply leaving people to choose the way of bondage they are freely choosing and will continue to freely choose unless He intervenes. Does that trouble you? He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. According to His will, Jacob. He will harden whomever He wills. Pharaoh. Does that bother you? Paul's saying it will. If you're following what I'm saying, that's not going to work in your brain naturally. Verse 19, question number 2. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
That will be the natural objection if you're following what Paul is saying. You'll say, who can resist his will? If he chooses who is saved, he does not choose others but hardens their heart. Who can, who can do anything? That's what you're going to naturally think, Paul says. And if you understand what Paul is saying, you'll answer this objection. If you try to help Paul out, then you've got to ask if you're really tracking with him. You try to help him out by saying, well, here's how that rationally works. Paul does not merely anticipate this objection. He virtually predicts it. You will say. It's an objection natural to rational creatures. So if you avoid, does that make sense? If you avoid the concern by providing a neat and tidy way of removing the tension, you're not really catching what he's saying. It's common for Christians to offer the solution that in eternity past, God looked into the future, foresaw who would receive Him as Savior, elected them to eternal life, and rejected those He foresaw would reject Him. Now that makes perfect sense. That seems very fair. That's basing everything on the basis of what someone will choose to do, and that all works for us. But how does Paul address the problem? Not like that. He could argue, and elsewhere does argue, for the compatibility of divine sovereignty and human freedom. Even though God ordains all that comes to pass, people do freely still exercise their free will as they choose to reject Him. But brace yourself, Paul doesn't go there. He just keeps putting the screw down harder. I'd love to talk to him about this. I'd love to know what he was thinking with this, but he just won't let us loose here. That could be a way that he speaks of it. How does he answer this objection? You will say, you will say, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? Put on your helmet. This is a hard one to take. Here's his answer, verse 20. Who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Wow. When we put God in the dock, we put Him on trial, and we prosecute Him, we're on the wrong trail. God is bigger than that. And there is no being in the universe with any deeper love and compassion and mercy than our God. But He is not to be trifled with. And I think that's what Paul fears here. You will say there's injustice with God. Don't say that. Who are you to talk back to God? So if we understand what he's saying, the natural objection will come. Answers to get God off the hook are absolutely useless. The problem with these solutions is that they remove the very tension that Paul introduces and assumes. And there's not a whiff of those solutions here. There is just looking at a sovereign, great God and being in awe. Even though God ordains all that comes to pass, people freely exercise their will as they choose to reject Him. But here again, we brace ourselves. Who are you to answer back? 
to the Lord. He pictures here clay in the potter's hand. That's us. We are clay in His hand. He can make with us what He chooses. He does so always with a depth of love and mercy that we'll never understand, that goes deeper than anything we could ever sense or truly perceive and appreciate. So it's not this this mean God who just makes pottery how He chooses and breaks some of it and keeps some of it arbitrarily. Not at all. But if we don't see ourselves as the molded clay, we don't see ourselves. We see ourselves as the prosecutor, the lawyer, and God is in the dock being tested by us. Who are you to do that, Paul says? No, we're clay. And He can make of us what He wishes. It doesn't take away human freedom. It doesn't take away our responsibility in any way, shape, or form. But it puts Him as the potter and me as the clay. And that's a good place to be. That's where I begin to see God for who He truly is. Does He not have right over the clay to make out of that same lump one vessel for honorable use? Verse 22. What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? What of it? Are you going to question God if indeed He does this. With long-suffering patience, God endures the rebellion of those whose sin excites His wrath, but He does this so that He may thereby reveal the justice of His holy anger and the majesty of His divine power when He finally judges sinners. That's not what I want to hear about my daily life. But God is assuring us this world is broken, it is falling apart, there is wickedness that is here, there are people that are rejecting me, and I know that I must, for the best ends and purposes, permit this rebellion to go on for a time. Because in doing so, through all eternity, you, my people, will never, ever fail to see my glory. You'll never fail to see my mercy and the wonder of saving grace. He just gets us there into it a little bit. It's almost as as if it's too glorious to really fully uncover. But sin is, and wickedness is, and a fallen world is the black backdrop against which God's glory shines all the brighter. And so there are vessels for destruction, hardened by God simply not softening them, but allowing them to express their will. There are vessels of mercy, and that's those who put their faith and trust in Christ. In order, verse 23 again, to make known the riches of His glory. That's the end of it. For vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for this glory. To see the glory of God. To be glorified themselves and in that presence. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is His sovereign prerogative. A prerogative He has been exercising from the earliest stages of salvation history from the day that he prophesied that one would come to crush Satan's head. 
that electing grace that He placed on the nation of Israel now operates toward individuals from all nations. And in His sovereign grace, that amazing grace has reached us these many, many miles from Israel. This long time after, it has reached us here. We have been singing about it. We have been reading about it. We have been encouraging one another in that gospel message today. These are challenging ideas. This is a challenging text. Doesn't Paul assume that, verse 14 and 19? You're going to really struggle with this, naturally. But our goal as a church is not to avoid texts that are controversial, not to avoid texts that are difficult for us to accept. In fact, I think if you scoot around this text, thinking that thereby you're going to know God better, you're wrong. He will reveal Himself in ways that don't necessarily make us comfortable. They rattle us. But I encourage us all to be grappling with the notion of sovereign election of individuals to salvation. There's a common struggle in coming to recognize how this works and how it could be true. There's a journey that we're all on in different places in this journey of understanding these things. But God doesn't always track the way we think best, so it doesn't come that naturally. But the question that we must each ask, I think at least at this point, wherever you are on this journey of understanding the Lord along these lines, is this. Does my decision to trust Christ as Savior free God to choose me? Or does God's decision to choose me free me to choose Christ? Does God's sovereign purpose liberate me to trust Jesus for salvation? Or does my free will liberate God to save me? Those, I think, are honest questions. I realize I'm tipping it a bit to what I think this text says, but I think those are honest questions. Let me put it into a picture just a moment longer. Bear with me. Let me try to put this into a picture and you draw the conclusion of where you're at and how it lines up with what we've seen here today in the text. Let's imagine a slave market where there are individuals who are chained and ready to be sold, and there's many of them, and they're in this big complex where people are gathered to buy human beings. A man steps forward, in this image, the Christ figure, steps forward and purchases the whole market, buys the whole thing, and he does so in order to liberate Some of these slaves, I say some because this is kind of a weird story, but I think it works it out. There's a fence around the market that he can't get through. He bought the market inside, but he doesn't have access to the fence. It's locked from the outside. It's open from the inside. Those slaves who hear of his purchase and trust it walk out the door, and he chooses those who escape to save them. Is that the picture? Or is the picture the same story, but there's no fence? And the one who purchases the marketplace goes in there and finds that all these enslaved individuals want to be right where they are, and none are going to leave. But he grabs this one, and this one, and this one, 
by his sovereign choice, looks them in the eye, and when they see his eye, they say, I'm going with you. And he takes out of that market everyone that he so chooses. Which of those two scenarios fit this text? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say, why does he still find fault? But who are you, O man, to answer back to the one who purchased the whole market? We must decide. When we grasp that I was one of those slaves, and I think either scenario on one sense, but I think so much more when we recognize that Christ goes into that place, looks us in the eye, and we irresistibly follow His beauty and His grace. When God does that, and when we recognize how that is of grace alone, there is only one response, and that's to go tell the world. It's not to hold that truth to yourself. And to say, well, God has chosen others, I don't need to get involved. It's to go tell the world. The other thing that it does is it absolutely humbles us. Why do others come to the feast we sang, I think, last week? Why do some come to the feast and others reject it? It just humbles us to the core of our being that God would choose us as his own. But he's always done this. He's always done this, and he always will, until he brings the last soul to himself by his sovereign grace alone, not by human will or exertion, but by his grace. Lord, help us to grasp, to gently, mercifully, lovingly, cooperatively as a congregation come to continual understanding of what you have done for us in Christ, if there is anyone here with a hardened heart, may they not draw the wrong conclusion. May they not point a finger in the face of God and say, it's your fault, you're hardening my heart. May they recognize that they're hardening their own heart and that you alone can save them. They're like that slave who's in the marketplace of slavery and doesn't know anything else and is just embracing sin. I pray that you'd Look them in the eye. May they see the grace of Jesus crucified and risen and follow him out of the slavery of sin and into righteousness today. For those of us who know you, may we meditate on these ideas in an encouraging way and may we grow as a church to know who you truly are. Through Christ we pray.